Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Linkson, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives we're talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Live by Scott, and Instagram at KingOKing, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire the community of people to take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're a therapist of any kind listening today, have you ever found yourself wondering why your patient's issue is not resolving or why it keeps coming back? If you're someone who helps people achieve their health, fitness, or performance goals, have you ever struggled with their pain getting in the way of success or wondered why they keep reaching plateaus they can't overcome? Or maybe if you're in either of these worlds, you view the other world as uncomfortable territory, a space where your abilities end and your need to trust is challenged. Reconditioning is the place where these worlds intersect, the place where each world becomes tangible and familiar, where misunderstanding and fear of the wrong move are replaced with confidence and creativity. The reconditioning process is powerful. It's provocative, and it has become a sought-after capacity in the human performance world. In the first week of September, ReconditioningHQ.com releases the R-Pro series, a four-step turnkey process to integrating the worlds of therapy and performance. Four steps, one mission, to make you the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. For more information about the R-Pro series or any one of our empowering courses, head over to ReconditioningHQ.com and use the coupon code RPRO2021 to get $50 off any one of our products and take advantage of our free 5 hours video that takes you through our groundbreaking method of improving mobility. I'm excited to have my friend Brad Thorpe and his company Isofit involved with the Leave Your Mark podcast. His mission is the same as mine, helping human beings live better lives. He doesn't want to see you let an injury force your retirement from the sport or activity you love. For decades, physiotherapists, athletic therapists, and chiropractors have recommended isometric strength training to help speed up rehabilitation from injury and included it in return to sport protocols. I know I use it often in my own reconditioning process. Whether you're goal is performance enhancement, injury prevention, or injury recovery, the all-new Isofit MSK takes athletes from the therapy room to the podium. To learn more, visit www.isofit, that's isofit with a P-H-I-T-M-S-K.ca, and remember to use the discount code Leave Your Mark. three separate words to save $500 off your Isofit MSK purchase. I want to thank Greg Lawler and Matrix Fitness for being a long-standing sponsor of the Leave Your Mark podcast. Matrix is indeed leaving a mark on the fitness and performance industry today. In the last 20 years, Matrix has become a global brand that employs over 7,000 people worldwide and delivers over 500 products catering to the medical, fitness, and athletic performance markets. Matrix has a wide range of programming solutions, and they are dedicated to creating deeper partnerships with their customers everywhere. Matrix has many ways of making a relationship work for you, the customer, and offers rental and various financial incentives to assist the financial constraints of adding premium equipment during this time of inconsistent revenue. For more information and free consultation, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA. That's teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. 
Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the honor of speaking with Julian Breezebois. Julian is the general manager of the Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning. He is responsible for all Lightning hockey operations including the coaching and scouting staffs, player procurement and development as well as minor league affiliations and operations. Under Julian's guidance the 2018-19 team became the first in Lightning franchise history to capture the NHL's President's Trophy for best regular season record. In his next season the team captured its second Stanley Cup in franchise history during the bubble postseason of 2020 and doubled down on this achievement earlier this summer with a back-to-back Stanley Cup victory. Prior to being promoted to general manager, Julian spent eight seasons as the assistant general manager under Steve Eiserman. As general manager of the Lightning's top affiliate, the Syracuse Crunch and the Norfolk Admirals, before that, Julian was the architect of teams that reached the Calder Cup final on three occasions during his tenure. Prior to coming to Tampa, Julian spent nine seasons with the Montreal Canadiens after joining the organization on September 1st, 2001, as director of legal affairs. In July of 2003, he added Director of Hockey Operations to his duties before being named Vice President of Hockey Operations on July 24, 2006. In this capacity, Julian oversaw the Canadian's AHL affiliate, the Hamilton Bulldogs. Bulldogs went on to win the 2007 Calder Cup during his first season under his direction. A native of Greenfield Park, Quebec, Julian was employed by the Heenan Blakey Law Firm before joining the Canadians. He worked in the field of sports law, where he represented several NHL and Major League Baseball clubs in arbitration cases as well as acting as an advisor in contract negotiations. He is a graduate of University of Montreal Faculty of Law, earned a master's degree in business administration from John Molson School of Business at Concordia University. Above all of his accomplishments, he is also a husband and father of two boys. Welcome, Julian. Thanks, Scotty. That was quite the introduction. Yeah, well, I uh, had to chop and cut and all paste from all the other stuff that I did my research on. But I wanted to read it because I was going to chop more out of it because it's always, you know, you get into all this stuff. But you you have had uh, an incredibly accomplished career. And it, it started, um, usually what I do is I go back to childhood, but I'm going to walk back that a little bit early, later in this conversation, because what brings you and I together um, is the working relationship we had in Montreal together. And I didn't actually realize it until I did this research that you and I started the same year. And it, right. and it was 20 years ago, pretty much this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the irony of that too, I'm going to release this next week is 9-11. And we started with the Habs um, in the middle of this crazy thing called 9-11, and then the same time Saku Koivu getting cancer. So I'm actually going to start there and say, um, what was your recollection of, of that first week on the job and, the, and 9-11? And, and, you know, when you look back 20 years ago when your career started in the league, what do you recall? You know, it's funny. I started working for the Canadians officially on September 1, 2001. Uh, but the previous year, when Andre Savard got the job in October, in the months that followed, I started to, like the law firm loaned me out to the Canadians. Mm. And I spent, uh, especially I would say from uh, February on, I was pretty much full-time at, at the then Molson Center, um, working with the Canadians. So for me, that September uh, 11th, that was my first training camp, right? Because mm. I wasn't there for training camp the year before. So that mm. was a new experience for me. Uh, and obviously, if I recall, that our physicals were going to take place either on that day or the next day. They did. They, they were on that day, exactly. On that day, right? That was yeah. the first day of camp. Yeah. And um, 
I was very close with Martin Madden Sr., who was our assistant GM. His office was next to mine. We used to spend a lot of time together. His son worked for the Rangers. He was in New York mm-hmm. um, when it happened, and we were a little worried about him. And then we, I think Dr. Mulder's son was also in New York uh, working in the fa- finance world, and I knew that Dr. Mulder, who most people know, but uh, was, and I believe still is, the, the head physician for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, so then your, your, your head quickly, no one was talking about hockey anymore. Like by, by 10 o'clock, there was no training camp, right? Everyone was focused on what was going on in Manhattan. Uh, we had all the, we had the TVs on and, um, and we knew the world would never be the same. Mm-hmm. What that would mean, we would come to find out later on. We didn't know at the time, but we knew like, this is, this is reminiscent of, of Pearl Harbor, right? That's mm-hmm. that level of event that is happening right in front of us uh, of us and uh, this is going to change our, our lives forever so uh and that you're right that was on the the that just followed um i believe saku koivu's diagnosis for uh, i think it was non-hodgkin's lymphoma we found that out the week before during our rookie camp, which was mm-hmm. uh, in Gatineau at the time. We had a tournament going on in Gatineau with our prospects. That's when I found out uh, about Saku. Uh, and that was, it's funny because I, I just joined the Canadians. I didn't even know Saku very well at all by then. Like uh, I was mostly working in the offices. I wasn't around the team. Mm-hmm. And I remember it hit me really hard. Uh, like how can a guy that fit, that young, uh, get that sick that quickly. Uh, mm. and, uh, and it was scary. Like, it, it, it's funny that that's how it all started. My, my, my time with the Canadian, <laughs> our captain was diagnosed and diagnosed with cancer and, and the world changed uh, forever because of, of the events of nine 11. Yeah. I thought it would be an interesting place to start, but, uh, I want to walk back and back into that. And you're, you're a Quebec kid. You, you grow up in Greenfield park and, what is influencing you as a kid? What are you dreaming of being when you're a little boy? Uh, Major League shortstop. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe early on Expos, uh, when they traded Gary Carter to the Mets, maybe for the Mets. Uh, <laughs> I got a little older, probably didn't care which team I would play on. <laughs> Just hoping to make it to the majors. Uh, but I grew up being a huge baseball fan. Uh, okay. Uh, the baseball cards, the trips to Cooperstown, uh, the games uh, at the Olympic Stadium. Um, huge baseball fan. I followed other sports, obviously hockey, uh, football, the NBA. Um, but I really was a huge baseball fan, and uh, that that Why? was what did the, uh, what did you like about the game? Uh, it's funny. I, I don't know. I I played. I played hockey and baseball, you know, very early on. Uh, my parents you know, initiated me to both. I even did a season of soccer, uh, like most parents do. They'll, they'll, they'll have you try out a bunch of sports and see what sticks. Uh, I think ultimately, you know, this is a 44-year-old man looking back at what a four, five, six, seven-year-old kid would have thought. Baseball, we play games, right? You go to the park and you play the game. Uh Hockey, we were practicing. Mm. I was just looking forward to the game. Let's get the game going on. Let's, just, let's go out there and, <laughs> and try to compete. And I think that may have been part of it. Uh, and and maybe very early on, I was, I I may have been a little more gifted towards baseball. 
Um, I, I have a number of friends who have kids who play ball here in Florida. There's so many, uh, baseball programs here. Actually, my, both my sons played last spring after a four year hiatus, which was nice as well, but they have pitch counts now, right? That's a big thing. Uh, actually, even at the little league world series this year, there was a, a very impressive young man, uh, a pitcher who could throw both right-handed and left-handed. Wow. And he was as proficient with one arm as the other. So he, he essentially doubled the pitch count he was allowed to have for a game, which, <laughs> which is the whole point of his dad teaching him to be an ambidextrous uh, pitcher. Uh, we didn't have pitch counts. So I remember very uh, vividly, my, the last year I played uh, baseball like house league in Greenfield Park, there were three teams and there were three pitchers. It was one pitcher on each team, and we pitched every inning of every game that our team played. And maybe that's why I kind of gravitated towards baseball, because I was one of those guys. I pitched every inning. Mm. What's not to love, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, maybe that's it. And, you know, Gary Carter was a big deal. Uh, probably my first sports idol growing up. And, and you go back to the early 80s in Montreal. That's kind of the tail end of Gila Fleur and all those great 70s Habs teams. And the Expos are, they're a big deal. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're the up and coming team with all the stars. And in 1982, they, uh, Montreal hosted the all-star game. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be there with my dad. I remember being there with my dad. I remember when the mm -hmm. clock turned midnight and it was late. And the, the gentleman in front of me, I was, I'm five. The gentleman in front of us turned to us and said, Hey, he wants to be getting tired. Like I remember that but the Expos <laughs> had Andre Dawson, Al Holliver, Gary Carter, Tim Raines, Steve Rogers. I think we had five players on that all-star team. Like mm. they were phenomenal teams. So I think a combination of all those factors, I was probably a little more gifted towards baseball. We were playing games instead of practicing, which is ironic because today I, I love to practice. Um, And probably by my teens, I love to practice baseball probably as much as I love playing the games. Um, and the Expos being as good as they were at the time and, and, and Gary Carter being as big a star as he was and as charismatic as he was, that probably all pulled me towards baseball. So what's the influence that drives you towards uh, going into law and school? It's funny because that was always my plan B. And I can remember it, uh, my, I, I still have many friends from growing up in Greenfield Park. There's a group of us that, that go back to some of us to kindergarten. That's how long ago we, we've known each other. And I, I, I vividly recall as far back as fourth grade that that was my plan B. If, if I didn't make it as a shortstop, a major league shortstop, I was going to be a lawyer. I don't know why, uh, but it always kind of stayed with me that I would go to law school and, and I'd become a lawyer. And I just thought those people had, had nice careers and had a level of influence and people respected them. Or at least that was my perception again, as a 10, 11 year old, 12 year old kid. Um, and that was something that To, you could aspire to and, and sounded like a really good, good profession. Well, to play then, off of that. So, so what, why'd I end up uh, in law? Because I wasn't a good enough shortstop. <laughs> <laughs> I could, couldn't run fast enough, couldn't throw hard enough, couldn't hit hard enough. I was going to say, what, were, what were you missing? What was the piece that was missing? <laughs> uh, speed. Speed. <laughs> like, uh, of the five tools, I would say speed at the time, which again is ironic uh, because shortly thereafter i kind of when i stopped playing after my my senior year of, of high school i got fast and you know you don't know back then i've always kind of i'd like to train you know like i like to train still to this day i went to the gym this morning um and back then we were taught to run a lot 
So I would jog a lot. Like I ran a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I would run to my friend's house. I would run to my girlfriend's. I, I, I ran a lot. And it just made me slow. I, I, had, like I, I could run a fast 5K, but I couldn't run a fast 60 yard, which baseball is, is you, you're tested on 60 yards as opposed to football, which is usually a 40 yard dash. I wasn't fast. And then I got my driver's license. I stopped running. <laughs> uh, I started training in the gym and lifting weights and I got fast. And, and right after I stopped playing baseball, I kind of started playing um, flag football for a few seasons. And I was a wide receiver. because I was one of the fastest guys there. It's, it's funny how if I had trained a little smarter, um, I would still be a lawyer today. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you go, obviously your, your, uh, trajectory in law and business was quite quick. Uh, you, you obviously had an affinity for it. Um, when you like it's plan B, you start to go to school. Is there a point in which you're doing it? You go, I, I really like this. And if so, what did you like about it? And what didn't you like about it? Um, because obviously you didn't stay a, a lawyer by trade. In essence, you went in a different direction. So parse that out for me a bit. Yeah, well, I, I joined the law firm first as a, as a law student, then as an articling student to, to get my, my, to pass the bar. And eventually as a lawyer for, for actually less than a year, I think, just under a year as a lawyer at Hinebix. But I was there almost three years at the firm, uh, essentially working on legal matters as if I was a young attorney, whether I was or not. Uh, probably what I enjoyed the most was the, the people, like that's an elite law firm. Um, with elite lawyers there, and they were working on really big, interesting uh, cases, uh, transactions uh, with some really accomplished people. So you're surrounded by accomplished people, and you get to learn from them and see how they they how they go about conducting their business. Whether it's the lawyers at the firm, the lawyers you're working um, that are representing the other side, or the clients themselves. Uh, I remember being on a, a pretty substantial conference call with Bernie Ecclestone, uh, who used to head uh, Formula One Racing. We were, we were mm-hmm. very involved at the firm uh, for a while there in Formula One Racing, and, and I happened to be involved in those that work. Uh, and that's fascinating, right, to see how he interacts with the lawyers and the clients and uh, how he's trying to bully people around, and, uh, <laughs> it, 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 and, and you learn from that. And we, we at the firm, when I joined the firm, I wanted to be a tax lawyer. Mm. And uh, actually, I went to Case Western Reserve for a while in the U.S. in Cleveland and started a master's in taxation law and, um, and then came back to Quebec and, and, and worked at the firm. And uh, part of my, during my schooling, I wrote an article that got published and, 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 and won some rewards. Uh, and it was on the contractual relationship between a uh, sports agent and their client under Quebec law. It is the driest thing you will ever read. Like it is, <laughs> like it, you read that, you'll never want to be a lawyer. Uh, but you know, <laughs> in our little world, it got a little bit of attention. I won an award. So as I'm interviewing at Heenan Blakey, I mentioned that because I'm trying to sell myself. And the lawyer who's interviewing me says, "Oh, that's interesting because we are in the midst of trying to start a sports law department." And we need a junior to come in who's bilingual and who knows a lot about sports. And uh, we have some senior partners here who uh, have a lot of connections in the hockey world. And uh, you'll get to meet them in your second interview. 
So that was awesome because I already knew I was getting a second interview before the first interview was even done. So that's good news. <laughs> and eventually I got the job. And, and when I started working there, uh, we literally cold call NHL general managers to get business. And they gave us their business. And we were so lucky. And I think that first summer I was there, we represented 12 NHL teams on, on all of their salary arbitration cases. So we, we were probably looking at 36 cases that year. So that's a lot of volume and a lot of learning in a short period of time. And now you're working with David Poyle in Nashville and, and Ray Shiro was assist, his assistant GM and Pierre Lacroix and Francois Giguere in Colorado and Pierre Gauthier in Anaheim and Glenn Sater and Doug Reiswar were in Edmonton. And you're interacting with those people. And then you're interacting with Bill Daly, who's the deputy commissioner at the NHL and, and a lot of the people that work at the NHL uh, head office and, and, you know, you get to learn from them and, and, and develop a network. And eventually uh, we just kept getting business and we, we're representing the Kansas City Royals now in soccer arbitration cases because Disney at the time owned the Ducks uh, and the Angels and their people were happy with the work we had done for the Ducks. They said, you should be doing this, but for Major League Baseball teams. And they put us in touch with the commissioner's office and he sent us to the Kansas City Royals and who were looking for an attorney. And we started working for them. And eventually after I left the firm, the firm actually started doing some work for the Expos. And then the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League needed a lot of legal work done at that particular time for all sorts of reasons. And we ended up doing that work for them. And I was kind of the head guy or the lead person doing that work. And uh, now you're meeting a lot of people in, in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League and Gilles Courteau and, and understanding how that league works and, and what drives that business. And it's just the right place at the right time, learning from all these great people. It was awesome. Mm, that's that's cool. So you start, how, how, did, how do you get lent out to the Canadians then? It's just a, a confluence of that same process. Eventually the Canadians want more of your time. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was working, uh, I was a GM at the time and we had done some salary arb case work for them. And Regin had asked us to uh, do some prep work for some contract negotiations that were, uh, you know, taking place now and a year from now. And uh, he'd actually asked us to do an analysis of all of their contracts to see whether he had done a good job or not on each one. And I ended up doing that work for him. And uh, uh, unfortunately for him, he was let go, I believe, in October, late October that year. Uh, and then Andre Savard came in. And Andre had done everything in the hockey world. He'd been a player, uh, first round pick. Uh, he'd been an assistant coach, a head coach. Uh, head amateur scout. Uh, he'd done everything, but actually work in the office. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was the one area where he felt he needed a little bit of support. Um, and because I'd done this work for the Canadians and for in the past, and Pierre Boivin, who was the president, was aware, he reached out to the firm and he said, look, Andre's interview interviewing candidates for an assistant GM position, but we're going to need time to find the right person. Could we borrow Julian for six months? And uh, the firm agreed to that. They worked out some sort of financial agreement between the firm and the Canadians. And I, I was loaned out to, uh, to the Canadians for six months. And at the end of the six months, uh, Andre, you know, asked me into his office and he said, we've, I have been interviewing all these guys. And I knew who he was interviewing, but most of them were my friends or my clients. So I kind of knew what was going on. And at the end, he said, uh, I've interviewed all these people. I think you're the best guy for the job. If you want it, it's yours. And mm. And I left the law firm and I joined the Canadians. And after I signed my contract, Pierre Boivin came over to, uh, 
to my office and congratulated me. And he said, then he presented the contract that uh, he had negotiated with the law firm saying they wouldn't hire me at the end of the six months. They wouldn't hire me away from the law firm. He said, this is your first order of business. You got to get, uh, get us out of this. <laughs> because at the time, uh, I was going, the, the setup was I would work 20% of my time with Pierre Boivin on business stuff, doing legal work on the business side and 80, 80% of my time doing hockey ops with Andre. So, um, so I was very fortunate to work with the both of them and, and learn from them. And, um, over time, uh, eventually around 2005 or six, uh, yeah, probably 2006, my contract was up and I met with, uh, I met with Pierre and I went with, uh, by then Bob Ganey was a GM and I told him, look, I, I'm, I'm, if I want to be, if I want to keep going up uh, the ranks uh, in this business, uh, either on the business side or the hockey side, I need to commit to one. Like right now I'm, I'm, I'm at 80% of what I could do on, on both sides. Uh, if I want to become really, really good at, at one or the other and give myself a chance, a chance to maybe move up the ranks at some point, I need to commit one way or the other. And, uh, Bob said, well, I need you in hockey ops. So that's that. And I, and then I, I, you know, I left the business side and, and, um, and, and focused entirely on hockey ops from that point on. Well, I like to sort of unpack for the listener, kind of how people make these pivots in their lives, uh, in certain ways. And what was the affinity or the joy or the, you know, connection, passion, et cetera, in you, that that decision actually worked for you. In essence, instead of being sort of on the legal business side, you now were you were moving into the hockey side of things. What it what was what was lighting in, as a fire in you that you wanted to make that kind of pivot rather than maybe continuing to work with a, a Pierre and moving through the business side of the operation. You know, truth be told, I I would have been happy either way. Mm. Uh, and and uh, honestly, like uh, the Canadians treated me. Great. Uh, from the Gillette family who owned the team at the time, Pierre Boivin, all the executives uh, on the executive team uh, that Pierre had assembled, and they were all so good at what they did, and, and they, were, they were an impressive group of people. Um, and everyone on the business, on the hockey side, obviously, the, the coaches, the support staff, the, the various GMs I worked with, everyone was awesome. Uh, and, and I felt so generous with me. Oh, you know, uh, imparting their wisdom, their experiences, what they had learned over the years. Uh, I tend, and especially back then, I tended to ask a lot of questions and I never felt like I was annoying people with my questions. They were always really happy to answer my questions and be very generous in their answers. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just a great environment for me. I, I was so lucky. Uh, I don't know that today, uh, how old was I? I would have been, you know, 23 in 2000 when I, I started working with the Canadians. Uh, I don't know that a 23 year old gets that level of responsibility anymore, right? They, mm -hmm. they, it doesn't work out that way. And, and, and the other thing too, if I look at how the, the hockey uh, operation staffs were built back then, it was a lot leaner than it is today. So, uh, you know, by the time I, I left the Canadians, I'm overseeing the player development program, the all our minor league affiliates, uh, the operations of the farm team. I'm hiring the staff. I'm doing player contracts. I'm doing staff contracts. I'm involved in pro scouting. I'm involved in the draft. I, I, like you're touching everything. Um, analytics are starting, so you're a little involved there too. 
like today we hire someone and the, it is so specific and everything is hyper specialized that you, this is what you're doing. Like you're doing analytics and even in with, within our, in the inside of our analytics department, you might only be doing programming. You might only be doing video breakdown. Uh, you might only be doing crunching math, the numbers for us. Uh, and it's the same thing. Uh, you know, when I left the Canadians, Pierre Gauthier was a general manager. I, I was his assistant. Uh, we had an administrative assistant who also did team services. And that was the department. Hmm. Uh, I have four assistant GMs. We have two administrative assistants. We have an analytics department that all in is 11, 12 people now. Um, we have six pro scouts. Like in Montreal, we had three. Like things have evolved where... Uh, the departments have really grown and everyone's job is is more and more specialized and you, you need to be really, really, really good at that one thing. I happened to come into the game when that was less the case and you're allowed to be involved in everything and le- learn, you know, all the different, uh, you know, aspects of hockey management. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was really fortunate to come in at that time. The other thing too, when I came in, teams were looking for lawyers. Hockey operations departments were hiring lawyers. Uh, by the time I came in, probably half the league had one on staff in hockey operations. Today, the, the people that come in that don't have a player background or coaching background, uh, they come in through analytics. They come in with economics degrees or computer programming or mm. uh, engineering, uh, uh, math degrees. They, they don't come from the legal field anymore. Interesting. Um, on the on the note of sort of your age when you come in and going into the the NHL dressing room, and I know from having worked with you, you were always really curious and interested in my area of practice. What was it like to walk into the dressing room with a staff like the Canadians had, which was a pretty veteran staff, guys like Pierre Gervais and different people? Did were you? Did you sort of put your curiosity cap on and say, "I'm going to go learn more than I am going to impose more"? Or what, you know, I always found you very curious and interested. So I'm just kind of well, interested well, in your thought process going in. Yeah. Well, when I come in, I I, I have very little to contribute, right? I I I do. Uh, like I knew how to uh, evaluate a player's cyber arbitration case and his value in terms of contract negotiation using objective. Uh, criteria. That was my area of expertise. I understood the CBA. I knew about the CBA. That, that's what I could bring to the table. Uh, and then everything else I learned on the job. Mm. Uh, so knowing that uh, I had a lot more to learn than uh, to contribute, I, I think I just asked a lot of questions. And, you know, after the fact, over time, you realize how good a Pierre Gervais is. Like he's probably, he's, you know, probably has the, the reputation for being the best equipment manager in the league and maybe of all time. Uh, you were a director of player performance, uh, overseeing the, the, the conditioning of our athletes. And, you know, you've proven since leaving the Canadians how, how at the, how high a level you are in your field. Uh, I just got lucky that you guys happened to be around. I got to learn from the best when I was there. Um, and it was the same thing on the business side, like the Francois Seigneurs and the Ray Lalonde and the Donald Beauchamp and uh, Jacques Aubet. They, they were so good at what they did. You spend time with them and you ask questions and you, you see the depth of their answers. You realize, okay, these people really master their craft. 
Uh, and, and, you know, we were surrounded by all these great people that were really good people and really good at what they did. And I got to learn from them and it was awesome. And the coaching staff, like the coaching staffs, because, uh, you know, it changed uh, over time, but all of them were so, so generous with me. Uh, my, my travel buddy, when I started the first few years was Rick Green. I would sit with Rick Green on the plane. I would sit with Rick Green on the bus and Rick, I, like he'd been in the league forever, had played in all-star games and, you know, Russian series and uh, won a cup in 86 with the Canadians and then had coached uh, I think in Long Island and maybe in LA. And I was coaching with the Montreal Canadians and, and uh, on top of being really witty and funny and good company, he had phenomenal stories and he was always happy to, uh, to, uh, to, to share those stories with me. And every time we would land into India in a new city, it was probably the first time I'd been in that city. So we go to Detroit for the first time. Go, oh, Rick, tell me about Detroit. And then he'd tell me all the good and bad about Detroit. And then maybe the next week we'd land in you know, Minnesota. Uh, with Rick, tell me about uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And he'd tell me all about all these. And he, there's always a story from his playing days, from his coaching days and, and, and like he was awesome. Roly Melanson was our goalie coach and uh, he was really into fitness too. So we'd find ourselves in the gym, either at the bell center at the same time or on the road at the hotel. Uh, like he introduced me to squash and I really got into squash for the, uh, the, the longest time. And, and I uh, really was into squash until the day I finally beat him. And the- <laughs> 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 uh, uh, but it, it, it's uh it, that was the environment I, I, I was fortunate enough to kind of find myself into at, at that time. And it was, uh, I was so fortunate and it never, uh, I never took it for granted. And to this day, I don't, I, I always understood uh, how lucky I was. And, and I've always been really grateful that I got to, you know, live the, I go through those opportunities and meet those people and, and share that time. I got to, to share with those, those people. And it was the same thing. I, I could go on and on. I remember going on scouting trips with Andre, obviously, and Martin Madden, but at Clemenceau Dwayne for a year, uh, he scouted for us. And I went on some, some scouting trips with him in new England and went to see, you know, my first college games. Uh, and what's the difference between the college games and the junior games and this program and that program and um, how the coaches at the NCAA level interact with, NHL teams versus how, you know, CHL junior coaches and managers interact with NHL teams and just had so much to learn. I had everything to learn. Um, so that, that speaking that of, yeah, well, speaking of which you talked about earlier, um, Bob Gainey sort of, uh, instructing you to remain as his, uh, uh, right-hand man, so to speak. What, what was it like to work with Bob? I mean, Bob, I have my perspective on, he was, you know, a man of sort of very certain words and had a great sense of humor in the background. But um, how was that experience? What did you take away from and learn from him? It, it Again, it was perfect boss for me at that time. Bob loved to delegate. Uh, he loved to work with the NHL coaches, the NHL players. Uh, he's very knowledgeable. He could have done everything I was doing, even without his law degree. Like he's very well read, uh, had a lot of experience by then. He'd been an NHL general manager, had won a Stanley cup, went to a couple finals, uh, won some GM of the year awards, had been an NHL head coach on top of his hall of fame playing career. Like he, he had all the tools, uh, but he wanted to focus on working with the NHL players and the NHL, uh, coaches. And that's what he told me when he got the job and we met, um, 
And uh, and he said, you know, you this is what Andre Savard is going to do. He's going to oversee uh, the, the player side of uh, of our player development and our farm team. And everything I didn't I didn't bring up. That's you, Julian. So uh, working with the other departments, <laughs> budgets, uh, contracts, staff contracts, uh, you know, interacting with the NHL on administrative stuff, uh, overseeing the office for like that was me. And that was a lot of responsibility at a young age. And again, the people around there were really supportive and really good at what they did, which really made it easy for me. Uh, But I was, that's what you want when you're young. You want to prove that you can, you want opportunities to prove yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other thing where Bob was really, really good as, as a leader and, and a mentor for me is sometimes he knew I was making a mistake and he let me make the mistake so that I would learn from the mistake. And uh, doing that as an NHL general manager in a market like Montreal, and obviously these were never necessarily uh, high visibility mistakes. Uh, He shielded me from those. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, to to still have the confidence uh, in himself and in me to let me make that mistake, knowing that I would learn from it and come back better, it takes a special person and Bobby is a special person. He's a phenomenal leader. And, and uh, I will ever, I will forever be grateful for, for what he did for me. And, and when Andre Savard left in 2006 to, to join the ping, the, the Pittsburgh Penguins, Penguins coaching staff, I remember Bob came into my office and he said, well, Andre's leaving. We're going to need a new GM in, uh, in Hamilton. And uh, I think yeah, like you're up for the, you're up to the challenge. It's your turn to go show what you can do. And he, he literally like figuratively, but literally pretended he had keys to the Hamilton Bulldogs franchise said like, take the keys and go compete against the other guys, show them what you can do and left. And I can just, you feel so empowered and, and you don't want to let him down. Uh, and, and that was, that was the, it's just, I have so much affection for him. He was, he was incredible for me. I still talk to him every now and then. And and there's, you know, there's some of those people in your life when the phone rings and you can see now on the caller ID who, who it is that's calling when Bob Ganey's calling, I already have a smile on my face. I mean, know what he wants, but I'm already looking forward to the conversation. That's awesome. So I'll talk a little bit about that. You go, you take over um, the Bulldogs and you guys win the Calder cup. What's that's your first, cup experience so to speak on your on this uh, pathway to success so um what was that experience like for you quick break here and we'll be back in a couple of seconds with our podcast guest the reconditioning process is powerful it's provocative and it has become a sought-after capacity in the human performance world reconditioninghq.com has released the r pro series a four-step turnkey process to integrating the worlds of therapy and performance four steps one mission to make you the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with the first step is R1 Foundations, and it's recently been turbocharged with the injection of applied neurology. We are extremely excited about what this new capacity is going to do to your ability to solve problems and serve your client. For more information about the R Pro series or any one of our empowering courses, head over to reconditioninghq.com and take advantage of our free five hours video that takes you through our groundbreaking method of improving mobility. 
A new era of performance training is upon us. Maximize your isometric endurance strength and functional performance with the all-new Isofit MSK. No matter what your sport, Isofit will help best prepare your body to tolerate the forces associated with it. This not only reduces your chances of sustaining career-limiting injury, it will also enhance your ability to perform at your highest level. I really like what Brad Thorpe and Isofit are doing, and I encourage you to learn more about their mission by visiting www.isofit, that's isofit with a P-H, msk.ca, so isofitmsk.ca today. And remember to use the discount code, leave your mark, three separate words to save $500 off your Isofit MSK purchase. Matrix Fitness is about performance innovation, and I'm proud to have them with me on the Leave Your Mark podcast. They recently named my good friend and awesome performance coach, Mark Fitzgerald, as their head of performance team, which is a bold statement for anyone who wants to know they're working with the best. Matrix has all kinds of interesting lines of equipment. The Matrix Glute Trainer addresses the discomfort, inefficiency, and danger of working with loaded barbell during hip thrusts. The Matrix Glute Trainer accommodates resistant bands and weight resistance and is customizable to different body types and sizes endorsed by many and comes at a cost below others on the market the matrix s drive is a sprint performance treadmill that supports sprint training resisted sled pulls and pushes all on the frame of a standard treadmill the seven feet by three foot footprint of the S-Drive is non-motorized and is perfect for coaches who do not have access to a track or want to provide coaching in real time with the athlete. The non-motorized feature and flexibility in a simple machine keeps benefits high and investment low. For more information or a free consult, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. We're back. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. Uh... (laughs) Well, it was it was a valuable experience in terms of player development to just learning, you know, the pace at which players develop, and it's different from one player to the other. And and some guys are going to you know be ready sooner than expected, and some guys are going to take a little longer. Uh, and at first year, I was still completing my MBA, uh, so uh, and we had you know we we had inherited a coaching staff that was already there and doing a good job, uh, so. I, like I was there just trying to support them. You know, I signed the players that we signed and I made some trades along the way. Uh, but for the most part, I, I was really there. Hey, what do you guys need? Uh, I think one of the things we did do, we hired a full-time strength coach that year uh, for the first time in Hamilton. And I thought that was important for the development program to have uh, someone there because at the HL level, a, the players still have more untapped potential in terms of, of uh, the physical maturity. Uh, and they have more time to actually work in the gym in season. Uh, and, and I felt it was important for us to have someone full time. Um, you know, there, there, there are a few times where I've, I've imposed a, a player on a coach, uh, but that was one, uh, that year. And again, no, the, Don Lever, who's the head coach, could not have known at the time. Uh, but when we signed Carey Price and we assigned him to Syracuse, to, to Hamilton, I had the conversation with Don saying, like, Don, like, Carey Price is our goalie now. Like, and he's going to play all of these games. And if you have concerns or you don't want him to play or you're planning on playing someone else, call me first because the plan is – Carrie Price is going to play, which was going to, which was putting myself in, in Don's shoes. That was, that was a tough situation. He had an all-star goalie in Yandani. Uh, 
already. Uh, and, and now we were imposing carry on him. Uh, in the end, it worked out for, for everyone. It was the right decision. Um, uh, but yeah, that was an interesting, interesting first season. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of years later, my last year in Montreal, we brought in a whole new coaching staff that I got to hire. And, and by then I felt like we had really assembled a really good development program. We, we had extra coaches. Uh, we had a, you know, a head coach, two full-time assistant coaches who were all really qualified and, and great coaches. We had a full-time video coach. We had a full-time strength coach. We kind of built up the support staff and the, the resources for the players, how we traveled, how we fed them. And so it took from 06, 07, even though we won the cup that year, I really felt that my, the, the 2009, 2010 team, like that, that was the, first time where I felt, okay, this is a, this is an awesome development program. We've built something special here um, that I, that I think will, will pay dividends. Very cool. What was your decision for doing, going back and doing your MBA through all of this? Cause that's a big, uh, <laughs> big yeah. chunk of, uh, of craziness to bite off in the middle of NHL, uh, yeah. NHL uh, madness, so to speak. I always thought I, I might at some point go do it. And I was considering it at the time. Uh, and Gaetan Five, who we both know had worked for the Canes for a while, he left the Canes and he went and had done his MBA and I would see him every now and then. And he told me how, how great an experience it had been for him. Uh, and that I, like, I should look into this. Uh, and in 2004, uh, there was a work stoppage in the NHL and Bob and I were trying to find stuff to keep our, our staff busy uh, everyone. So we literally went through every staff member in hockey ops. How could we keep them busy and active and, and find ways to, for them to continue to contribute, uh, while there were no, there was no NHL hockey to go on for some people. It was easy. The amateur scouts were still scouting amateur games because those were still ongoing and we were, we were going to have a draft uh, for some other people it was a little harder. And at the end of, uh, of that meeting, once we'd gone through everyone, Bob pulled out a, uh, newspaper, uh, ad, uh, it was Globe and Mail or Gazette or Montreal Gazette, one or the other. And, and he said, uh, what about this? What do you think of this? And uh, it was an ad for uh, the Concordia Executive uh, MBA program. And I said, oh, Bob, you're going to go do your MBA? That's awesome. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. He said, no, no, not me. You. You should go do this. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, well, actually, I've been thinking about it. And he said, uh, put, put a plan together as to how this could work and, uh, and how we, the Canadians, can help you financially to pay for this because it's an expensive program. And, and in terms of making, the, you know, making sure you do what you need to do here and still find time to you know, get your schooling in and, uh, and bring it to us. And, and I did. And uh, I presented it to Bob and he said, I'm, I'm on board, go present it to Pierre. So I had an appointment with Pierre Boivin and I presented it to him and um, it took him one second to say yes. And I left his office going, I should have asked for more money. <laughs> I think I'd split it up. Uh, I'd pay two thirds. He'd pay one third. It took him one second to say yes. I, maybe I should have gone 50, 50. <laughs> That's always the way huh? you go. Yeah. Oh, what, did I, what was I doing? Uh, no regrets. It worked out for the best. <laughs> I, um, 
only have so much time with you and I could probably talk about your Canadian experience for a, a long time, but I want to sort of segue. How do you, how does the opportunity to work with Steve Eiserman in Tampa actually come about and what's a decision-making process around going there and doing what you've, your sort of second NHL career has been? Yeah. In 2009, my contract was up and the Canadians, uh, I don't recall, they were for sale or had just been sold uh, at that point. Uh, and again, I was, I was close to the Gillette family and I tend to, um, you know, develop loyalties to the people I work with. Uh, and I, I knew that uh, I would probably develop similar, uh, sentiments and, and an appreciation for, for whoever was going to come in next. Uh, but I thought, you know, this might be a good time for me. If I wanted to grow as a hockey executive, uh, I thought I would benefit from going, to another organization and, you know, expanding my network, getting to know other people, learning from them. Um, I, I would grow more by going somewhere else and, you know, living all these new uh, experiences than just staying in Montreal. And I uh, would probably increase my odds of becoming an NHL GM. And just as importantly, if not more importantly, increase the odds that I'd be successful if I got the opportunity, because I would be better, t- you know, I have better tools and, and, and to, 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 you know, to live up to the challenge. So when my contract was up, um, and it is some personal stuff too. My wife was on maternity leave. We just had our, our second son uh, that, that spring, my sister who had been living in New Zealand for a few years was moving back to Montreal. There's two of us uh, in the family. So I figured if I leave Montreal now, well, my parents still have another sibling to, <laughs> to have Sunday night dinner with. Uh, so it kind of worked out. Uh, the timing was good. So when, when my contract was up, I, I met with Bob and I told him, Bob, I, I think it's time for me to go. Um, if I want to grow as a hockey executive, I think I need to go, you know, work somewhere else. The Montreal Canadiens are an, they're an incredible organization. They're, they're an incredible institution, uh, but they're also a very unique NHL organization. I want to see how the other franchises operated, uh, how they did things, and again, expand my network uh, throughout the, the hockey world. So I explained that to Bob. I said, uh, I think what I don't want to you know, uh, let you down. We had 10 unrestricted free agents that summer. There's a lot of work to be done and new owners coming in. Like I, I wanted to be there for Bob. So I said, this is consider this my one-year notice. Let's do a one-year contract. And that gives us a year to, uh, you know, ensure a smooth transition. Um, and at the end of the season, hopefully you'll help me find a, a job somewhere else where I can, you know, go learn from other people and, and other organizations. And, and that's what we did. And, and then in, in the course of the season, you know, Bob stepped down, Pierre Gauthier came in. Um, but my mind was already set. Pierre, Pierre was awesome. He, he was and still is a friend of mine. And he said, I understand what you're trying to do. And, and I see value in that, but I, I could really use you here. Like, what would it take for you to stay here? And I said, like, it's, it's not about you, Pierre, you know, all the affection I have for you. It's I had made this decision before any of this ever came to be that you became the general manager. This has nothing to do with you. It's all about my career path, my growth experience. And, and, um, and then the Tampa job opened up and, um, funny enough, like when they did the uh, interview process for that job, when they did the search, uh, a little background on, on the Tampa situation, Tampa was sold about the same time. Uh, I think our current owner, Jeff Vinick, bought the team, I think in March of 2010 and, uh, 
one of the people that was advising him is a gentleman by the name of Jack Sperling, who used to be part owner of the Minnesota Wild. And that's kind of what he does. He puts groups together and he buys, you know, major league sports franchises, NBA, NFL, hockey, NBA. And he was advising Jeff and uh, they were trying to find a CEO. And while they were looking uh, for a CEO to run the Lightning, uh, Jack was also working on putting together a list of potential GM candidates for the, the job in Tampa. And uh, trying to pare it down to a manageable number of people for the CEO to interview. Uh, and I don't know how many people they met with or interviewed at that time, but it was a substantial number of people. And at a certain point, I ended up being on that list. So I spoke with Jack Sperling about the GM job in Tampa. Uh, probably more of a, a courtesy somewhere. Someone must have told him, hey, Julian's an up-and-coming executive in our league. It wouldn't hurt you to have a chat with him. And, uh, and you know, Jack Sperling checked the box and went on to buy some more serious candidates at that point, uh, including Steve Eisman. So eventually Steve Eisman gets a job in May. And um, I had only told a few people that I was leaving. Uh, some people at the NHL had offices that, that I had good relationships with who might be able to help me. And then obviously the, the people in Montreal, um, you know, Pierre Boivin, Bob Gainey, Pierre Gauthier. I think that was probably the extent of the list. Uh, so Steve Eisen ends up getting the job I think in May and we're still in the playoffs in, in Hamilton when that happens. And uh, I call Ryan Martin, who was uh, working for the Detroit Red Wings and is a friend of mine. And at the time, Jim Neal was still there, I think. And uh, Ken Holland was a GM and now Steve was leaving and Ryan Martin was there. They had a pretty, uh, a, a little more, uh, uh, more staff, more personnel in their hockey ops uh, department than, than we did in Montreal for sure. So I called Ryan and said, oh, this is a, this, this is cool. Probably means uh, opportunities for you to play a bigger role in Detroit. Now that Steve is going to be moving away. And he said, well, I, you know, I think I'm going to go. Uh, Steve had offered him the job to be his assistant GM in Detroit, in Tampa. I said, oh, well, that's an even better opportunity for you. That's awesome. I see a lot of potential in that organization. I don't know Steve very well, but I, from a distance, he seems awesome. And I think he's going to be a great boss and a great general manager. And in the course of the conversation, Ryan says, why do I feel like you would have liked that job? I said, well, here's a story. I'm leaving Montreal. I gave him one year's notice last summer. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for an opportunity, kind of like the one in Tampa. I think that'd be awesome for me. And Ryan said, if... Uh, well, yeah, well, it would be, but I'm taking it. If something happens and I don't get the job or you know, I turn it down or something happens uh, at the time, I think, you know, they're expecting his wife to transfer her job. She's also an attorney and moved to Tampa. Uh, I'll tell Steve he should hire you. So maybe a month goes by. And I remember one evening I was at our house in Broussard and I'm doing some dishes. It's like nine o'clock and my phone rings and it's Ryan Martin. I pick up and he says, hey, Julian, how's it going? All good on my end. What's what's new and exciting with you? And he says, uh, I just called uh, Steve Eisman and told him I, I'm not going to go to Tampa with him. Like uh, uh, my heart's in Detroit. I, I'm going to get a promotion here in Detroit. I'm really happy. My wife couldn't get transferred. It, was, it got complicated. So I told Steve I'm not going to uh, Tampa with him, but he should call you and hire you. And that's kind of how it started. So I, I still owe Ryan Martin a steak dinner. Uh, I, I need, to, I need to. I think I need to, to, to settle that uh, debt uh, with him, uh, and that's how it started. And then Steve asked for permission to uh, meet with me. Pierre Gauthier was super supportive and uh, and encouraged him to hire me, and eventually he did. Wow, 
So you you get you've gotten to work with a few uh, I would call legends of the game who were both great players, but at the same time also great GMs who've done some special things in their careers. And Steve obviously is one of those people. What did you learn from working with Steve Eiserman? Uh, with Steve, it was first of all I really enjoyed coming to the office. Like I enjoyed his company. He's witty. He's smart. Uh, he's creative thinker. Uh, we had fun. Even in some of those years, we were a terrible team and we were losing a lot and that's no fun. Uh, but we still had a really nice complicity, uh, both you know, professionally and personally. We, I just enjoyed his company. Uh, and then I got to learn from everything that he had learned in Detroit from his experiences as a player. And then in, in managing working with Jimmy DeVolano and Scotty Bowman and, and Kenny Holland and Jim Nill and how they did it there and how we did it in Montreal. And we kind of blended both of our experiences to kind of build this Tampa program here. Um, yeah, like, like we, hmm. it, it was different in, in, in Montreal, as I mentioned earlier, Bob delegated and then like, Unless there was an issue, like he didn't really, he like that's your thing. Uh, in Tampa, we kind of always worked together. We did everything together, um, or, or most things together. So I spent a lot more time with Steve in those years than I did with Bob when I was working with him because we we did everything together. We we scouted together. We every decision we met with the coaches together. We met with the owner together. We we, we were uh, especially those first few years. Um, we we spent a lot of time together and we kind of brainstormed ideas and eventually he's the GM, he'd make a decision and then we'd go out and execute it as best we could. Uh, but we spent a lot of time together. So it was, it was, um, that was also a very valuable experience for me. Um, and, and a great person to go through those experiences with Steve was awesome. He's another guy to when the phone rings and it's Steve Eisman, I've got a smile on my face, regardless of what we're going to talk about. Nice. Um, I want to just sort of get a sense of how you've balanced one, because I know you've always stayed fit and you're healthy and stuff, balance staying fit and healthy and also being a good dad with being the demands of what it is you do in your work. So I know your, your kids mean a lot to you. How have you been able to sort of balance those things or keep them in, in everything in its, in its ordered place, so to speak for you? Um, you know, it's, it's worked out and I feel like I have that balance. A lot of it, obviously my, my wife, Mary Claude, she, she does most of the heavy lifting around the home. Uh, and, and, and she balances work and life and, and home, home life as well. Um, so a lot of the credit should go to her. I'm lucky. My kids are both into sports. So we like last night I went, uh, I worked out last night. I, I, my youngest worked out with me. Uh, so, you know, I'm spending quality time with him. We drove to the rink, we worked out at the rink. Uh, you know, so I, I get to kind of do both at the same time. Uh, I've been able to coach a little bit when they were doing baseball. I was like the parks, 500 yards from the house. It was easy to get to usually it was before our game. So late afternoon, you come home, you get ready for practice, you run practice or you help out running practice. And then you shower and you head to the rink and you're there in time for game time. It worked out awesome. Uh, my young, I have two boys, they both play my youngest. I still jump on the ice with his team, um, and, and work with the D a little bit. I like, I enjoy doing that. Um, so we're lucky that we have similar interests and I can do a few things at the same time. My wife's really into fitness as well. So we, we, I get to spend some time with her playing tennis or going for a jog in the morning or whatever it may be. Um, 
you know, it's, uh, and then it's when the, when you have that opportunity to, uh, to step away from the office, you have to take it. Right. Don't say uh, that's something I learned in Montreal way back when don't just stay in the office. Cause you feel like you need to be there. There are plenty of times where you're going to have to be there. or may not want to be there late at night on weekends, holidays. So if it's quiet, leave, go get that workout in, uh, go home and spend some time with your wife and your kids. Uh, don't, don't, don't spend more time at the office than you need to. It doesn't mean you're not working. Like you're getting your work done. Um, in our business, that might happen. Like we traded Ryan Callahan. I think it was one o'clock in the morning, or we signed Ryan Callahan to his extension. It was like one o'clock in the morning. We traded for Braden Coburn. I think we closed that deal. It was one o'clock in the morning. You're working. You're like when when there's work to be done, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. But when there's nothing that needs that's pressing and needs to be done right now, go play tennis. Go play pickleball. Go hit the gym. Go for a run. Go. Go go home early and catch up with catch up on some news with your kids. See how they, they, their day went, how how their homework is going, and whatever that might be. I want to kind of bring this to a close with the sort of the last few years' experience. So obviously, you take over as GM, and in your first year, as mentioned in the my intro, but you, you guys win the President's Trophy and. That has sometimes been a bit of a uh, negative moniker on some teams in the league over the years, and and you guys have uh, an early exit that season. What do you learn from that, and then how does that transcend into the success that you've had these last two years that has been obviously very special? Well, very few President Trophy winners win the Cup because whoever ends up winning the President's Trophy during the regular season it doesn't mean that they're literally they're they're much better than whoever's second. They might even be better. Like it, it might be you got healthy for the, uh, most of the year, and uh, maybe you got a really good start and were able to bank some points. But another team got hot in the second half of the year, and are probably maybe going into the playoffs playing better than you. Uh, I can't say that was the case for us that year. We we were we were a good team from start to from the start of the season to the end of the season. We won 62 games and we didn't have any laws. We have, I think we had at least two series of more than 10 wins in a row. Um, and, and our players were humming. And even though we were resting guys down the stretch and sitting them out and we were rotating, we had eight defensemen and, and three of them, I think would rotate in and out of the lineup to try to keep everyone active uh, and, and manage wear and tear. And we had a couple forwards with whom we were doing the same thing. Uh, so it's not like we were chasing any regular season, uh, accomplishment or uh, marks. Uh, we were getting ready for the playoffs, but you go into the playoffs, that team, we ended up playing Columbus. They were a really good team. <laughs> and even though I think they were maybe 30 points behind us in the standings, they relatively speaking, the, the, the difference is marginal. Uh, and, and they played better than, than we did and, and they managed the situation better than we did. And, uh, what happens when you're the president's trophy winner is it creates expectations that aren't really realistic, uh, because you're not that much better if at all, than the other teams are going to be competing with come playoff time. Like it's about executing when it matters. And, um, we didn't do that against Columbus hats off to them. They played well, they got the job done, but we also, we didn't put our best foot forward to try to make it hard on them to beat us. Mm. Uh, the following year and the year after that, we executed when it mattered, uh, late in games when we had the lead overtimes, um, all those high leverage situations over the course of a game, we managed those situations so much better the last two years. And it's a, a huge reason why we ended up winning those two Stanley cups. Mm. 
what have you learned about yourself in, in winning the Stanley Cup? Um, how much it mattered to me, ironically. Mm. I don't know that it, it, I don't know if it should, it shouldn't in the grand scheme of things and, and what matters in the universe and, and, and humankind, like uh, mankind, but I really wanted to win those two cups. I really wanted to win the first one, uh, the, the joy of winning that first cup. Uh, there's very little in life that uh, is similar. I literally, uh, and I don't want to overstate it, the birth of your kids, that's about it. Uh, because you're feeling that joy, like you can feel it from top to bottom. It, there's a warmth throughout your body and it's it's just pure joy. It's a massive dose of pure joy. And uh, that was an incredible moment. And then we need it again last year. I liked our chances. I really liked our team. I wanted us to be able to capitalize on how good a team we had and try to accomplish something that is a pretty rare feat. It's rare, fair, rarefied air getting to back-to-back Stanley Cup championships uh, and, and then being able to win it in front of our fans, with our families in the building, uh, with our owner in the building, who means so much to what it is we do in our organization and our community and to me personally, um, that was, that was an incredible experience too. They're, they're completely different and they were both awesome. Um, you know, when we won in Edmonton in 2020, our travel party was 52 people. That's what we were allowed. We had 52 people in the locker room celebrating after the game. This year we had, you know, over 300 people in the locker room. <laughs> it was a different party. It was very, very different. Uh, so it's, uh, and it, you know, now, now we're looking forward to trying to do it again, win the third one. And uh, you know, the first year, my day with the cup was here in Tampa, where I had all my Tampa friends, uh, but I didn't have any family other than my wife and my two uh, my two boys. Uh, this year, I was able to bring the cup to Montreal and and share it with with some of my loved ones in Quebec, uh, family and friends, most of whom I hadn't seen over two years. Uh, so that was an awesome experience. But again, you know, it was small groups. People would come in for uh, ninety minutes take some pictures, catch up a little bit, have a little, you know, have something to drink, a bite, and then they'd leave. And then next group would come in and, uh, and we did that all day from like 10 to eight. Um, if we can find a way to do it again, hopefully by then COVID's behind us and we can have like a big party with everyone where I can spend actually more time with everyone that's there. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, so that's one more reason why, why uh, one more incentive to try to, to get this third one here. Yeah, that'd be cool. What's a point of reflection on, you talked about uh, Carrie earlier and that moment of sort of imposing his play in the Calder Cup run. So segue 20 years later, you're playing against Carrie Price. Uh, in the, well, w- w- there was a bit of an irony to this year's Cup with who you played and who was the goaltender, et cetera. Did you reflect upon that much or was it kind of a... Uh, I didn't, well, I didn't like... I didn't feel like we were playing against Carey Price. We were playing against the Montreal Canadiens and, and we're really focused on doing what it is we feel we need to do to be successful. Uh, the, the whole playing against Montreal thing, like for me, it was about getting a chance to live a Stanley cup final in Montreal, uh, which was special and, 
And unfortunately, it did take it took something away that the building wasn't full. And we had all these these uh, measures, and I'm not criticizing. It's just the reality of the world we live in right now. Uh, but I remember, like, we were in a bubble in Montreal as well, where we could only go to, from the hotel to the bus, the bus to the rink. Uh, and I was looking forward. Usually, I walk from the hotel in Montreal to the rink because the ele- the the energy around the Bell Center before a game is electric, and it, and everyone's into it. And I was so looking forward to that walk. And okay, we're told we're not going to be able to walk to the rink. We we'll have to take the bus. That's okay. And I was still looking forward to seeing the crowd assembled around the Bell Center and, and from the from the bus. But no, the bus kind of took a long detour. We kind of came in a back way. I didn't ever saw any fans, so I, I didn't get that experience. And uh, you know, the there was thirty five hundred people in the building, and 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 they were loud, and they did the best they could, but. 3,500 is not 21,000. Like you, no, you can't, sure. you can't replicate that. And, um, that's the, the reality of the situation. Ultimately, uh, we played really well in that series. We found a way to win and, and win it at home, which is really nice. Uh, mm. but if it didn't mean more to me because it was a Montreal Canadians in terms of, uh, that's the team we beat. Uh, it's about trying to do what it is we're trying to do, you know, being able to say mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, the, the, the the nice Montreal wrinkle was there's nothing like NHL playoffs in Montreal. And uh, this was his first Stanley cup final in, in the history of the, the bell center. And uh, I'm glad I was able to be there to, to, to witness it. That's cool. I'm going to finish with the little read real quickly. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I usually read from my book, the day you were born, which is you're born uh, January 24th. You're Aquarius six. So your purpose is to gain strength and discrimination from within so that you can manifest something wonderful in the world and slow down enough to enjoy your success. Blessed is he who makes his companions laugh, the Quran. Aquarius sixes have a love of truth and beauty and a natural social nature that makes them easy to get along with. Their date books are always filled because of their charisma and knowledge of how to treat others. But Aquarius sixes need discipline. Their hearts are either too big or they are loners who keep their distance from others. They are excellent manipulators. They sense what people want and like to know how to give it to them. They can be obsessive and desire to be spoiled and seen as special. Query sixes must find their spiritual purpose and then, if they can learn to say no to themselves and others, they're on their way. They are hidden rebels. They love truth and will fight for justice. They know how to surrender to love or how not to give it all. So, I don't know if that resonates with you, sir, but Go ahead. No, uh, there you go, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate your time, Julian. It was wonderful to get your backstory and, and it was it was an honor for me to work with you in the years that we did in Montreal. And I didn't realize our paths had 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 covered the exact same period of time pretty much in Montreal. Yeah. So uh, be good and uh, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, all the best to you, Scotty. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>